Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of our Seven Investing Podcast, where we're here to empower you to invest in your future. You can learn more about our Seven Investing membership, where we recommend our seven favorite stock market opportunities each and every month at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe, where you get started for just one single dollar. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. I am very excited about today's program. We brought in some of the smartest minds around the world to talk about semiconductors. This is a huge industry. This is approaching a trillion dollar industry globally. And so we've got to look at some different perspectives on it. So not only by myself, I, I think we wanted to bring in some, some internal and external analysts for this one as well. I'm joined on the show today by Seven Investing's fellow lead advisor, Christoph Pikarski. Uh, we're also joined by Jose Naharo, who is the host of Jose Naharo Stocks, and also by Nick Rossellillo, who is the host of Chip Stock Investor. And both of them together are also working on a project called Semiconductor Investing and More. Uh, gentlemen, it's nice to see you all here today. Christoph, are you doing okay up in Austin? Oh, never better, Simon. Although it was a chilly bike ride to campus this morning, uh, 32 degrees, but sunny and ended the week of classes. Things are great. Fantastic. And Ho Jose, how are things going? I think you're up in the, the Northeast right now, the East Coast. Is that right? Yeah. Christoph just made me roll my eyes a little bit when he was complaining about the 32 degree weather uh, here in Jersey. We're, we're definitely getting a nice cold front right now. That's fantastic. And Nick, I believe you are somewhere in the world. I never know where anymore. Uh, I, I forget. I forget at the moment as well, but um, it's cold. It's cold. It's real cold right at the moment. Fantastic. Well, well gentlemen, looking, mysterious. Forward, look, looking forward to all of these perspectives. You know, we, we've kind of, uh, for the roundtable today, we've decided to break this up into topics and introduce a few companies for each topic for investors to, to dig deeper into. These are not necessarily buy recommendations. They're also not necessarily companies we are personally bullish upon, but they are kind of uh, representative of the topic that we'll be discussing about. And just to add some extra flavor to this uh, presentation today, at the very end, we're all each going to vote on which of the companies mentioned do we believe is the best opportunity for investors today. And so we've broken this up into two, I'm sorry, into four different segments and the first, Jose is going to be introducing chip designers, the companies that are actually designing chips out there, and introducing a few publicly traded companies to choose from in this segment. Uh, after that, Nick is going to be talking about verification and validation companies, so that after the chips are designed and making sure that you're getting all the bugs out of them so they're working the way that they should. Christoph's going to be chatting a little bit about the equipment manufacturers and the manufacturers of those chips after they're designed and tested. And then just to add some extra controversy at the end, I'm going to talk about the geopolitical tensions around the world and how that's impacting the semiconductor industry. Uh, okay, on that, I think I'm going to put myself back on mute for a little while. Uh, Jose, why don't I, I give the floor to you to talk about chip design? Yeah, thank you for that, Simon. And I think all these four topics are super important within the semiconductor market. Um, obviously might be a little bit biased and say chip design is probably one of the most important as it's kind of evolving the overall world that we have today and the technology that it's kind of innovating at the moment. Uh, for example, these chip designer companies that I'm going to mention are companies that deal with technology that goes are in products like autonomous vehicles, uh, AI, machine learning, data centers to kind of help with all these kind of computational needs that are happening around the world. Uh, so Normally here in the chips design, we, we do have kind of companies that design mature chips, um, which are older style products, but then the most advanced place as well. And the two companies that I wanted to bring in, in, in discussion today are AMD and NVIDIA. These two are very popular companies around here in the semiconductor market. Uh, I, I believe these are probably one of the main known. And the reason being is both these companies originally started mainly in the consumer market. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you are a gamer, if you've kind of created your own computer, if you even have a laptop or desktop, you know these two players because either they're graphics cards um, for AMD or NVIDIA, or maybe AMD's kind of processors are what's powering your computers at the moment. And as kind of even the kind of computational power we need on our everyday laptops continue to increase. These uh, companies continue to design even better processors. Every year we get either a new generation of processors, either from uh, the CPU front or the GPU front. 
But now these companies, uh, Simon and, and the rest of the team, they're right. They're no longer becoming consumer dependent. They're kind of entering those other spaces. Like for, I, I want to say for semiconductor investors. Now, one of the big bull cases is data sensors and artificial intelligence. And this alone, it, it, it's such a, I want to say such a broad market that data centers in general can be used for, for numerous things. Uh, artificial intelligence, uh, the, these data centers can be powered the AI for, let's say, some of these advertisement platforms to help find the best way to kind of hit you with an ad and make sure that you become a great consumer. For all these video streaming services, it helps you kind of find the perfect show for you to watch and recommend and keep that kind of user retention on their platform. For autonomous driving, it's helping kind of understand the sensors and how a vehicle should react on real time. So uh, AMD, most recently on, on uh, just a quick look on, on some of their data center solutions, at the end of December, released their fourth generation of Epic processor, Genoa, which, is, seem to be, which seems to be doing great in forms of adoption right now. It's their fourth generation. Uh, every, every generation, the adoptions become stronger. And this is one of the big bullish cases for this company at the moment, as they continue to grab market share from some of the giants out there. NVIDIA, on the other hand, is also focusing, they just released their H100 system, the Hopper, uh, which is a GPU for data centers. And that as well continues to grow. Uh, I, there have been a few reports out there where the Hopper and NVIDIA continue to do well with the AI products that we're seeing already in the market, ChatGPT, that online, online chat engine. Uh, a lot of people are, are kind of forecasting how products like that can just come out of nowhere and can kind of already create a massive, massive amount uh, of demand for some of these computational powers. I, I can go on a little bit more, but before I just want to hear some of your thoughts in, in, uh, from some of you guys here about this market in general. So I go first, you want, I, I unmuted first, I go first. Go for okay. it, Nick, absolutely. Uh, Jose, um, I just read, I, I was doing a little research after we talked on our last episode of, of the semi-investing and more podcast. And I, I was doing some digging because I was curious about this. I remembered NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong saying this at some point a couple of years ago during an earnings call about how at that particular time, he was talking about most of the AR, AI market was training AI models. And now it's moving to inference. So a lot of AI models have now been trained like your chat GPT Inference is now when you type in the prompt to chat GPT and you say, chat GPT, help me cheat on my college exam, chat GPT, help me write uh, a title for this podcast. Um, and the inference is like, okay, here's the answer. And like two thirds of the AI market are going to be actually be driven by inference. The training was only one third. So it, it, I was looking for a rough number on that because the immediate thought is like, we've already seen so much massive growth for companies like NVIDIA and AMD from data centers because of AI. How much could there possibly be left in the tank? And it seems it seems to be maybe quite a bit more now that these things like ChatGPT are just now starting to become commercialized. Um, that kind of gets me excited about all those things that you were talking about, Jose, uh, with this, this AI market. It's just kind of the tip of the iceberg at this point. Definitely, Nick. And I want to say you just got uh, me excited too, because I mean, just think about it in the autonomous market or in the automotive market where a lot of these semiconductor companies are focused on. If we ever want to get into... Um, self-driving cars, all those cars are going to need those sensors uh, and kind of be sending that information back to all these data sensors. At the moment, we don't have any cars or very little, just the ones that are training in random cities. But imagine a full United States of just cars sending that information, the amount of computational power that is going to be needed when or if we get to that uh, in the next decade. I wanted to comment too about GPT because I feel like those are the three letters that are going around the internet right now. You can't have a conversation without talking about OpenAI GPT right now. I mean, kind of behind the scenes of what's going on in that is this is a conversational chatbot now, right? Like Nick said, you can ask it to cheat the MBA exam, which it just did for Wharton, you know, and other things that you can get a an a, a AI response that's powered by these chips behind the scenes. You know, there are neural networks behind the scenes working in these data centers, like Jose pointed out. 
that are so important. A fun trivia fact, for each 100-word response that GPT gives you, it costs about three cents in computing processing to respond each time. And that sounds like it's so cheap, right? But when you think about all of the queries and all the things being asked to this, GPT is actually costing about $100,000 per month just for the computing that Microsoft's using in Azure that it's uh, charging for, for that com computational horsepower. And uh, then, of course, Microsoft is giving a lot of that money to NVIDIA for the A100 GPUs and also to AMD and to other providers of those chips that are designed by these companies that are cutting edge out there. Really cool, really cool application too. GPT, one more time for anyone who didn't hear it the first. Uh, Jose, I, I I have to ask because I have uh, <clears throat> a few of my buddies are self-styled nerds, if you will, who are working on some quantum computing stuff and they're they're very much in the first line of fire using the most advanced computing. And from them, I hear something that's a rough equivalent of NVIDIA is the obvious leader in terms of, I mean, I guess everything, <laughs> power, strength, and like that there is no question. And so I'm, and so when I also think about the old poker adage that says, the single worst hand in poker is the one that's second best. And I combine NVIDIA and AMD as two of the maybe most tempting options to invest in, in terms of chip design. Why can you make a case for AMD that's made that I'm not taking into consideration? Um, definitely. I, I, I want to say this is something that I've always questioned myself. I, I, I personally am a, a shareholder of both these companies. And it's like, how can I be rooting for one and also be rooting for the other one if they're kind of hitting similar markets? I want to say one thing that is important is all these data centers and computational powers, they all focus in different workloads, right? The workload may be needed for, for weather, um, for weather forecast might be a completely different workload needed for autonomous driving. And I wanna say each of these are kind of getting in different segments and there might be also a power performance. One of them might be better in raw performance while another one might be better in power efficiency. Uh, the other thing is AMD and NVIDIA at the moment, uh, AMD is, uh, seems to be a true leader in the CPU processor, while NVIDIA seems to be a leader in the GPU processors. Again, they all have kind of their individual workloads. In the future, we are seeing that they, their, their competition is going to start to mix a lot closer. Um, but I do believe what's going to be the difference is all how it's the consumer itself or, or, or these data centers and how they're going to want to structure their data centers. They're going to have they, they're going to want to have. I want to say. Um, choices, uh, like I mentioned, within those different workloads as well. And then the other side is outside of chip design, uh, these companies are also kind of, while they do have similar markets, they're also hitting different markets. Uh, NVIDIA, for example, is focusing a little bit more in the software side. And you mentioned a little bit about quantum computing there. In forms of hardware, it seems like we're not really there too much, except these researchers uh, that most of your colleagues are probably are, are doing that. But in forms of uh, of of us getting there, it seems like it's going to take some time. But NVIDIA on the software side has created some form of simulation to simulate how quantum computing can be in the future. AMD doesn't have software solutions like that, where AMD is more focusing on kind of maybe entering the embedded market with their kind of acquisition of Silinks. Uh, so while they do have similar market competition, it does seem like outside of that, they're also focusing in other markets where they can kind of mix well with each other. Let's use that application analogy as a great segue into the next section of our podcast here today. Uh, we've got all these cool chips that have been designed to do all sorts of neat applications out there. But uh, Nick, I think it's probably pretty important to make sure they're working as designed, right? Making sure they're working as designed um, and also maybe just getting them designed in the first place. So um, this company, Synopsis, that you, that you mentioned at the outset, Simon, uh, has its hands... Um, I should say it's fingerprints maybe all over the chip industry very quietly. Um, very few investors, I think, have ever heard of Synopsys. Uh, so I was aware of this company 
but I really kind of started doing some digging. I think it was last spring or summer when I was presented with this company, Cadence Design, uh, which plays in the same space. It's called the Electronic Design Automation Software Space, EDA Software, uh, which is, you can think of um, as like Autodesk, AutoCAD, but for chips. Uh, and it's dominated by Synopsys, Cadence, and a company called Mentor, which is now owned by Siemens, the German industrialist. Um, but I thought, okay, Cadence, I, I know who that is, but I think Synopsys is bigger. Why not Synopsys? So I started doing some digging, and sure enough, Synopsys, far and away the leader in this space. It's a software design company. They're also a little bit like ARM computing. So that's the company NVIDIA tried to acquire a couple years back. So they actually have like some ready to go out of the box chips that a company could patent uh, or could license the patent on and then adjust to their needs. And then, as you said, Simon, I think this is a really critical component. Um, software design checks um, to make sure it's going to pass cybersecurity tests to make sure that the software uh, licensing is all good and valid. Um, a lot of a lot of things kind of embedded in there to make sure that the software is well integrated with the chip itself, um, so that there's this nice seamless design process from end to end, from the hardware all the way to the end software product that we use. Um, and I didn't ask this, Simon, before. I, are we sharing screen? Can I share screen here? Go ahead, Nick. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to throw this up and and just maybe kick it your guys' direction and see. Talk, talk it think. out though, Nick, if you could, for anyone who's listening to audio only, describe what you're looking at on the screen. Okay, got it. So uh, we created two revenue breakdowns here for Synopsys. Um, the first time-based products, it's basically software as a service. That is close to 60% of the company's revenue, $2.99 billion. Upfront products, those are things like the patent licenses on ready-to-go out-of-the-box chip designs. 1.2 billion in the last year. Maintenance and service, kind of like it sounds. Maintenance and service. Um, I've got a second breakdown here, though. Um, so 91% of the company's revenue in the last year was semiconductor and system design. Again, this is just another way to look at the revenue. So over 90% actual semiconductor and computing system design, and then 9% in that application security testing. Um, so that segment in particular is small, but as we all know, like cybersecurity, uh, an incredibly massive and growing need right now. And Synopsys is kind of in this position to tackle it like right from the get-go, right when a company starts designing a chip that's purpose-built for maybe a specific application. Right from the start, let's make sure the hardware is going to be good for cybersecurity. The software is not going to have any holes in it, no leaks. Um, so this one's this one's intriguing to me. Um, not the fastest-growing software business you'll find, but I find it to be kind of a unique play on the chip industry because a big investor complaint, chip stocks are cyclical, software kind of more steady, slow and steady, high profit margins along the way. So we didn't discuss questions beforehand, but maybe, you know, hit me with questions here as well. But what do you guys think of a company like this? What would you be looking for to invest in a company like Synopsys that's a software-based play on chips? It's fantastic. They built a great model. I'll take the first stab at this, Nick, as we open it up. But, you know, it, it, they built out such a nice backlog of, you know, this subscription license business that you said it's it's very responsive to these ship makers, right? They don't need to go out and they build, you know, these, these giant fabs. They're there with the software to verify what's working. And then the design part, you know, the IP part of it, I think of these as the building blocks of chips, right? It, it's kind of like... Um, Lincoln Logs or Legos or Minecraft, depending on what generation you're from, but you need to have these building blocks that are uh, in place already for designing chips. You don't need to build them from scratch all the time. The only, the only thing I wanted to add, maybe from my perspective too, is that Synopsys uh, has basically committed, I believe it's 80% of their free cash flow to buying back shares. Uh, they are a shareholder friendly company that as they have this nice business, it just throws off a lot of cash. They're using it in a way that's rewarding to us uh, as shareholders too. 
maybe uh oh go ahead jose uh, i was just going to make a quick point where it right now um the semiconductor design is no longer just these companies like amd and nvidia right some of our popular companies like apple right design their own chips amazon creates their chips for their data sensors so uh tesla designs their own chips for 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 their autonomous driving so sometimes when we think about semiconductor companies or or something like this that um in the chip design we we also got to remember that the big players are also in this space as well that can definitely be a nice amount of customers for uh these software players Nick, I uh, I want to ask you um, about commodification because I guess that's something that all investors have to be wary about. And the flip side of that, of course, is the moat. You know, what protects an investment from being commoditized? And often, you know, with with things that are manufactured, there's a race to the bottom and then companies might make great products, but the investors suffer. What is the moat that you see with Synopsys? Why can't another company say, yeah, us too? That is a fantastic question, Christoph. And frankly, it's a beef that I have with most software companies, one that I've come to have with most software companies in recent years, I think we give them more credit than they are due for what kind of competitive moat they have. Because a software business is so asset light, it it kind of in itself creates a pretty shallow moat type of business by design, just because it's so easy versus like a fab company, like you're going to talk about here in a moment where you have a hard asset, it is manufacturing and it gets commoditized over time, but it's expensive. That's a that's a barrier to entry when you're dealing with you know pieces of equipment that might cost tens of millions or in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars, just the piece of equipment itself. So that is a problem for Synopsys and Cadence and all software companies. And I think in addition to you know the company spinning off that free cash flow, like Simon mentioned. Um, to shareholders via share buybacks and dividends, they have been quite acquisitive over the years, buying up smaller peers and kind of bolting them onto their existing, their existing operation, both to strengthen what they already have, but also, you know, to eliminate a potential future rival. Uh, so I think that is absolutely a risk, a big risk that I won't try to explain away for synopsis, because I think it's it's absolutely a real thing. We're going to move into the third segment of our podcast here in just a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsor for today's podcast. Grab your cup of coffee as I share some words about Zach's investment research. Okay, let's take a moment to consider the times that we're in right now. Current economic climate has people wondering, when will this ever end? We're at record high gas prices, volatility in the market, inflation, and ongoing disruptions in the supply chain, especially for here in semiconductors. But luckily, investors have got Zach's Investment Research, which provides in-depth financial data and expert analysis to help us make more strategic investment decisions. The Fed's doing all it can to cool down inflation, and stocks have already started to respond. And when the market is gripped in pessimism, Zach's provides the invaluable resources that investors need to capitalize on volatility and to buy stocks when they're low. They'll also help you get uh, to spot the losers so you know which stocks to avoid or eliminate from your portfolio, experts know market volatility can unearth great opportunities, and current conditions have done just that. So to provide value to our listeners, Zax is providing the opportunity to download their report, Five Stocks, set to double for absolutely free and with no obligation. Their experts are revealing the top five stocks that they believe have the best chance of gaining 100% or more over the next 12 months. Just imagine how that could affect your portfolio or your retirement savings. So fight inflation and download your free report today at zax.com slash seven investing podcast. That's Zax Z-A-C-K-S slash seven, the number investing podcast. Let's bring it back to the program, gentlemen. We've talked about chip design. We've talked about EDA. Now let's talk about these uh, expensive capital investments that are required to manufacture the chips. Christoph, I'll hand it over to you for this one. Simon, uh, forgive me, but I, I can't help proselytizing about this book that you've heard me proselytize <laughs> about so often, but it really helped me understand 
how we got to where we are. And the book I'm referring to is Chip War by Chris Miller. What you learn uh, in, in following the history of the semiconductor industry is that because of the extraordinarily high capital intense intense business that is the making of chips and out of complexity and you end up the the history ends up consolidating into uh, a few main players let's say that anybody in this business basically at some point got to the came to the conclusion that we had best outsource this to the professionals <laughs> And let's worry about the, the specific thing that we're working on, right? And so out of that pattern, there arose what I think two companies at this moment in, in time, that if these two companies were to go away, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I said the world would kind of stop. And I, it sounds like hyperbole, but I really don't think it is. In other words, Almost everything that we now take for granted, at least in, I would say, developed countries, runs on, on semiconductors, one way or another. Phones, computers, refrigerators, cars, watches, you name it, you can't do without these things. Or it's, I mean, it, we would go back to maybe what we could perceive as caveman days, right? And so what I think is fascinating is that given that everything revolves around semiconductors, how is it the case that two companies, in this case, I'm referring to ASML and TSMC, kind of uh, are responsible for, <laughs> for the entire world's you know, continuing to function? I think I'm trying to describe, now that I think of it, is a bottleneck of proportions that I, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but I'm not sure if there ever was a time where so much, so much depended or was concentrated in the hands of, say, just one, just one player. So let me make this concrete. ASML makes the most, I think, complicated and expensive machinery on the planet. And I, I forget the details, but it's like the number of parts required to make this machine is in the magnitude of hundreds of thousands. And I think Nick, I think it's like hundreds of millions to, to make some of these. And what what one of these machines does, what it's trying to do is basically reduce the wavelength of light used to make the most complex chips. So as the chips increase in complexity, you need small and smaller extreme wavelengths of light, right? Abbreviated to EUVs. But to make one of these is basically you can't. No company, no, nobody can do this except for the one company, ASML. So from an investor standpoint, you kind of have to, you know, step back and think like how one, how is it possible? Two, what are the consequences of there being such a bottleneck? And three, what prohibits this from being an extraordinary investment when there is nobody else literally that could do this? So what prevents a company like this that has such a, is a, a position of power from, say, raising prices, or you know, all the other things that come from a an un uh, uninhibited monopoly. I guess I, I don't know how el how else to to say that. To paint a, a a secondary picture, and Simon, I'm I'm sure, no doubt, you'll you'll continue in this narrative. TSMC is a fab that doesn't have this one and all monopoly, but it is such a significant player that should TSMC basically say we're, we're no longer in business, companies like Apple would be in 
very, very bad shape. The issue there is that unlike ASML, which is securely located in, in Western Europe, TSMC is in the crosshairs of, from the West, Western standpoint, could be labeled as an aggressive authoritarian regime, who, which is not shy about sending in warships <laughs> In the in the in the into the canal between China and Taiwan, saying, "Yeah, we we know the world runs on this factory on this island, and by the way, we believe the island belongs to us." So, the investment case for something like TSMC is to me much more complex than it is for something like ASML because. Should China wish to interfere politically, I'm not sure how the stock would react. I, I don't want to ruin the story here, but there is a sort of there is a lot of game theory obviously going on with this stuff, where you could say, in a similar light with like nuclear weapons, you could say, we know you're not going to use it because if you use it, that's guaranteeing your own destruction. And so, China too runs on everything that TSMC produces. So were they to compromise the integrity of that uh, fab, uh, it's lights out for them as well. So it gets real complex real fast, but all of which is to say, uh, anyone investing in the semiconductor industry, I think needs to first begin to admit how precarious all of this is. Anytime you have basically, you know, one or two pieces on the chessboard, like a king and queen that simply cannot be compromised, then the repercussions of that kind of <laughs> concentration of power are severe in, in all kinds of ways, for the better and for the worse. So I think I'll I think I'll leave, leave it there for now and, and see what you guys have to say about about that high level view. Uh, would anyone like to comment about the better or the worse, you know, the comedy or the tragedy of the story? It's some great points that Christoph brings up. It's a mic drop is what that was. Uh, <laughs> it is a very weird situation, Christoph, especially the the TSM situation. Yeah, I, I don't think it is hyperbole. It would, if for some reason that disappeared, TSM's chip making capabilities disappeared or were taken out. Yeah, it would reset um, society as we know it back quite a ways. And it's well, not like it would reset us back to the 70s either, because that old hardware has been ripped out and replaced by the new stuff that if you removed it, you know, there's no fallback for a lot of it, um, as far as I'm aware. But ASML I, I, is an incredible company. And I think you made the point about it has the benefit of being kind of an, a safer haven, <laughs> being located in the Netherlands, but still you get all of that power flowing through it. Um, and it's kind of the enabler of, of, of TSMC. So like if you're an investor and you're worried about geopolitics, you're not completely exempt from it with ASML stock because they rely on Taiwan semi-manufacturing buying their stuff. But you get a lot of the geopolitical risk removed from the equation. Um, it's interesting that you pair them up together. It's a, it's an interesting little um, contrasting situation. Um, two sides of the same equation, very, very different geopolitical situations for the two companies. Yeah, de definitely, Nick, I, I, if I may add on to this. Um... It's definitely a pretty interesting time for TSMC at the moment, right? It's they're in a very tricky situation where a lot of their customers are now seeing this kind of geopolitical risk where maybe they might be like, hey, okay, we'll give you 70% of our workload and we'll probably dish out the 30, uh, another 30% to maybe your competitor just in case, 
just in case some of these risks might happen. Uh, and we have discussed this, Nick, before, right, on, the, on our podcast, where we are seeing TSMC being a little bit more aggressive in international expansion, especially in the past past few uh, past few months, as we are seeing kind of this growth in incentives globally here in the United States, right? We have the CHIPS Act in Europe. We're seeing similar places, uh, expansion in countries like Japan as well. Uh, so, but it's a tricky play, right? Because this is a very expensive market and to build these fabrication plants is, is pretty expensive. Uh, it, it's pretty risky in, in financials one way or another. So I want to say it's very tricky for TSMC where they need to kind of be able to ease the the risk of their customers' mind where like, hey, we don't worry, we have these fabrication plants all over the world as well, where you don't have to worry about that. But then they also have to do it in a way where investors are going to be like, okay, it's good that you're doing that, but let's be careful with that CapEx that you're spending this year or next year. Or so it's definitely a tricky time. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm bearish on the company. I'm not, I believe this is a strong holding, but there's definitely some, some things to keep in mind when looking at a company like TSMC. And I'd like to chime in and talk about the risk versus reward continuum and why both of these companies are outliers to what you would expect to see. Uh, generally, as companies get larger and larger, larger market caps, more customers, monopolies in their field, that decreases the risk for an investment, right? If you are talking about a company that's got more than 50% global market share of semiconductor manufacturing, which Taiwan Semi does, or a company that has 100% global market share, in extreme ultraviolet lithography like ASML does, you would think, wow, super low risk, right? This is a fantastic company. But again, because of the things that, that Christoph mentioned, they are not super low risk investments anymore. There are so many people that understand we don't want to go back to the stone age. And these are the two companies that are really controlling uh, the production of, of semiconductor manufacturing globally. T TSMC is Taiwan Semi. A Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing. That's in uh, Taiwan, obviously. And they're trying to branch out in different locations. I think it's a great point to bring up, Christoph, of how important these companies are to everything. It might be the perfect segue for me to chat a little bit more about geopolitical risks in the final segment of this. Um, in addition to everything that Christoph did mention, which is very, very true, we have another interesting player in this uh, portion that, that I want to introduce named Intel. Because Intel has been around since the dawn of the semiconductor revolution, right? Since the 70s and Gordon Moore and Moore's Law, Intel was the company that kind of scaled up computing power and made it uh, possible for electronic devices and then computers and now cloud computing and now artificial intelligence. This is a company that's been around for half a century doing its thing in various capacities. Uh, but Intel has also been kind of attacked from all angles, right? Competitors that are trying to design more efficient chips, like we talked about in the first part of the program, that are trying to control different parts of the process, as we talked in the second segment, or trying to manufacture them more efficiently, as we talked about in the third. And somewhere in the middle of all this, Intel still continues to be a publicly traded investment opportunity. And we've got to size this up objectively as investors and say, okay, here's Intel, $100 billion company right now, off of its peak, certainly. Um, it designs its own chips. It's using a lot of them internally, its own processors, but it's also kind of opened up this new Intel Foundry Services Group, which is approaching about a billion dollars in annual revenues. And it's just gotten some nice funding from the United States government. The CHIPS Act has earmarked $50 billion, about $52 billion for the US to be globally competitive, not only in R&D for uh, semiconductor manufacturing, but also for the CapEx that's required for building out these extremely expensive fabrication facilities. And Intel went and it grabbed $3 billion immediately to set up a new fab up in Ohio. Uh, this could be a mega fab as it's being described. It could cost over $100 billion when it's finally completed. What is Intel trying to do with this? Well, it's certainly trying to woo American chip makers and chip designers to produce devices on American soils. Uh, it's already going after Qualcomm. It's already gone after MediaTek. It's gotten both of those customers on board. It's continuing to, to go after the prize here, the holy grail, which is Apple, of course, and woo away those contracts from Taiwan Semiconductor to produce them in Intel's fabs. Uh, it's going to be an interesting one to keep an eye on. Again, Intel is now selling at nine times earnings. 
So it's incredibly cheap. It's got an incredibly long list of problems that it's facing. It's got capital constraints. It's wanting to fund a lot of different things at the same time. It's laying off a good portion of its workforce right now to free up capital. It's still got its dividend that it wants to use to keep institutional investors interested. It's wanting to fund the fabs uh, and it's losing business in a several of its legacy product lines. But on the other hand, we've got Pat Gelsinger back at the helm again, who really understands. He's been there. He worked with Gordon Moore a long, long time ago. Uh, he's an engineer by training, is a very technical leader that wants Intel to regain its prominence on the global stage. Somewhere in between that all of that description, there's either a bullish or a bearish case, depending on how you want to look at Intel. But I'll open it up at that point, see what you guys think about this one. Well, I guess I'll jump in, Simon, and, and say, in that phrase, chip war, we didn't really talk about the war part. And when I said that the world runs on chips, that very, very, very much includes the world's military. And that's connected to things like basic survival of a country. When I was listening to you talk, Simon, it kind of it begins, it becomes very clear that when your own country's military depends on having the fanciest chips, you will very, very much be incentivized to spend all the money you need to to build your own stuff at home as opposed to in your rival's backyard, right? So the the wins, the, the when survival is what when we're no longer talking about just toys, say, if you want to be diminutive about it, but we're actually talking about your own country's military strength, then any company that could say, we will help our nation, you got to, as an investor, be saying, okay, we need to pay attention to that, right? Because this is not small stuff. And like you were saying, Intel has the intellectual capital still at the company. So even though they had many missteps in the evolution of the industry, I'm not sure it's wise to count them out, right? When they could very much come back and say, we'll defend our, we'll help our country stay sovereign. I, Jose, I, I, uh, I keep, I keep dogging on, on Intel on Jose's podcast too. And I'm, I'm probably going to have, I probably have like a mugshot with darts stuck in it in someone's office at Intel at this point, but I worry about that. Christoph, maybe, maybe you can weigh on this. I, I, one of the things I worry about is maybe, maybe I'll borrow your illustration of from from poker earlier i feel like at this point intel's like playing for the side pot um tsmc's already like got the best hand um and like intel's playing playing for like the side pot with samsung to maybe take second place and third place is like not going to exist um and they're behind so i i don't know and i worry that even if they do catch up what we don't know at this point is because so many countries are all trying to reshore that chip manufacturing as part of this, this chip war that's going on. Um, even ASML has said in a decade, the industry is going to be facing an overcapacity uh, manufacturing situation. So some of these chip fabs, they could be all scrambling for market share because governments are doling out the cash for it and saying, here, bring your, bring your, your fabs to us that in a decade's time, will these fabs even be all that profitable like they are right now in this moment in time? So maybe Intel does win that side pot, but what if it's like pittance? <laughs> uh, and they've they've done all of this work and thrown all this money after, after a what's really not going to be that great of a deal? I don't know. That's my that's my concern with Intel and the geopolitics that they're they're playing right at the moment. Should I, I want to come to that? Oh, go ahead, Christoph. Yeah, go ahead. I think you're uh, you're right, and maybe my counter to the to, to if if it's I'm not sure sure I could even call it a counter. It is this feeling I have about into the value of intellectual capital, and that because this stuff is so extraordinarily complex, 
that the assumption is if you take the brightest minds, put them all in the same room, might they innovate to the next, you know, new thing so that they, they kind of get out from the, they, they could both theoretically catch up and potentially make something new. I think that's the way I would be thinking of it, kind of like what Tesla is, is starting to do. You know, there is no second place, really. As Elon said yesterday, you could only see second place with a telescope. Well, Intel seems, uh, despite failing to take into consideration the innovator's dilemma from the 90s and the aughts, is it possible that they could re-innovate the fab so that it, be, it isn't a second best, it actually becomes world-class? Mm -hmm. It seems like that's a possibility, right, Simon, and from an invest, investor's standpoint? So I want to jump in and answer this and nerd out for a little while. So uh, please take a nap for the next 20 minutes if, you, if you're tired, because uh, this will certainly make your eyes glaze over. But there is an important technical term uh, for anyone listening. It's called process technology. And this is the IP that goes into manufacturing processes. So super important for companies like Taiwan Semiconductor or Intel, who's actually manufacturing the chips. Um, Samsung and Taiwan Semi right now are the two-horse race or the people at the table holding the aces because they have embraced extreme ultraviolet lithography. They embraced ASML's lithography machines when Intel did not years ago. And so what happened, they were actually able to make uh, seven nanometer or smaller transistors on their integrated circuits, and they won the most lucrative contracts from Qualcomm, from Apple, from anybody who needed to have as much computing as pow power as possible in their chips. Um, that, that pushed them to the front of the race. And now Intel, uh, interestingly, is catching back up and saying, okay, yeah, hey, you know, we can't just keep going on the same path. We've got to take a much more drastic measure if we want to be globally competitive. And guess who's placed the very first order for ASML's newest line of high numerical aperture machines that cost $350 million a piece? The first order that will be delivered next year is going to Intel's newest fabs. So it's not the Intel perhaps in the future of the Intel of the past. It's it, to answer your question, Christoph, I think they recognize they've got to they've got to do something to stay globally competitive out there. So I think that, you know, to, to keep this short and sweet, we're right at about an hour, short and sweet, an hour podcast. It shows you how much we could talk about this, but we've got a, a collection of companies and hopefully we help describe the semiconductor value chain and the different segments and how complex all of this truly is. And to remind everyone listening of everything that we discussed, we're now going to vote. Each of us is going to vote just briefly on the one, two, three, four, five, six companies that we mentioned. Which of these do each of our panelists believe is the most compelling investment opportunity right now? Uh, we are not keeping score. We're not going to have anything other than bragging rights for the winner on this. But just to recap, we had NVIDIA, and AMD, both mentioned as chip designers. We had Synopsys, which was a software verification provider. We had ASML and Taiwan Semiconductor as the uh, providers of lithography equipment and the chip making manufacturer. And then we had Intel, which does a little bit of everything. Jose, I see on my Zoom screen here, you are the farthest on my left. I will start with you. Which of those six opportunities is the best investment today? Oh man, today I think my answer would have to be AMD at the moment. I'm, I'm a huge growth style investor uh, and I do believe the potential is there. I think though, uh, just quick asterisk, if you would have asked me a month ago, my answer would have been NVIDIA, but that company has seen such a crazy, crazy run up in just the past 30 days that I think for that reason alone, for today, it would be AMD. Love it. And anyone listening to this podcast today is January 26, 2023. Uh, Nick, I'll come to you next. Which of those six is your favorite investment opportunity? Uh, I hate I hate only being able to pick one. Um, we can't be nuanced here. Okay, well, if I open up my portfolio, my money says NVIDIA. So um, that is my top holding as of the moment. So I, if I say anything else, I'm not being honest. One for NVIDIA, two, two votes for the chip designers, Christoph. Who are you going to go with as your top idea of the list? 
I'm going to eat my own cooking, Simon. Uh, it's I was so persuaded by my own speech. I'm like, oh man, I'm I'm a, I'm really smart. When I heard myself say there is one company upon which the entire world depends, I don't I don't know in investing how many times you get to say the whole world depends on 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 just one company. So ASML and I'm thinking, you know, in, in, in terms of like 20 years, how I'm ignoring the fact that it's already a huge company. I'm ignoring price per share. I'm ignoring multiples and valuation. And I'm just thinking like, if there is only one and there can't really, as far as like, there really is no way to become a number two, then that's a moat. Warren Buffett, I don't know, does right? It, uh, does Warren Buffett own ASML? I I can't like what's that's his number one criteria. Not, really. not until he listens to this podcast, okay. Christoph. Then he's going to change his mind. So ASML, it is fantastic. And then last but not least, this is these are all good companies, and of course we are at one point in time. Valuations go up and down on every day of the stock market, but. uh I'm going to vote for AMD as well. Just like Jose, I think that Lisa Sue has really turned things around there, not only with the epic CPUs and the data center and the growth rates that they're seeing there, but that Xilinx acquisition just opens up so many opportunities for FPGAs and custom chips uh, to perform the most demanding operations out there. I'm pretty impressed with that, and that's going to be the one that I'm going to go with. Uh, gentlemen, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing this with you. Thank you to our external guests. Uh, Nick and Jose, who are together working again on the semiconductor investing and more uh, project. I, I really enjoyed that. And Christoph, you know, you and I do this every month through our seven investing deep dives, where we really, you know, knock out the bull and the bear case for every single company that we put on the scorecard. I really appreciate it from every, every one of you. Thank you very much for being part of the semiconductor roundtable today. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this edition of our seven investing podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Invest.